you are listening to the Revive Church Podcast. We pray that this sermon blesses you and enhances your walk with God. Feel free to come worship with us on a Sunday morning, or you can learn more about us online at revivechurch.org. Good morning. We are starting our new series this morning, and one of the wonderful, delightful conversations I had this last week was with a person who wanted to talk about the potential of being a Christian and how much richness there is in knowing Christ as our personal Savior. When Christ died on the cross in payment for our sins so that we might be justified, made righteous before God, every area of our lives just opened up with potential in ways to be able to serve our Lord. But Christians, it is so easy, it is very easy for us to waste our lives in Christ. Rather than being focused on the things of God, we become consumed by distractions. Satan is distracting us at every crossroad. They're the big distractions that occur in our lives, the things that life inflicts upon us, those those circumstances, uh, things that happen to us, and they're those things that we do to ourselves as well. Those circumstances, they can have so much effect in our lives. For myself, when I was five years old, I had polio. Both of my legs were paralyzed from that point on. The way I would walk, the way I would relate to everyone around me in the world, was changed for the rest of my life. My teachers would see me differently and they would communicate to me differently. The principals, the the doctors, everyone would see me differently than they would see others, people with with able bodies. My my, uh, girls would look at me differently. Some girls, not all of them. I, I married a wonderful one. But they would look at me differently. They would see me differently. They would see my potential differently. Employers would look at me differently. They would wonder if I was going to be capable of of doing the things that that other people with able bodies might be able to do. And as we speak to people and talk to people and go out into the world, those circumstances change everything, don't they? And they can be amazing, terrible distractions for us. Distractions that, that prevent us from seeing our own potential it's in Christ. And then there are those things that we do to ourselves, those things that come out of our, our own sinful, prideful choices, those events that just seem to pile up one on top of another. And we're constantly dealing and sorting through the consequences of our sins and the consequences of our, of our choices. And they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Those are the major things that we're aware of, but what about the small distractions that that we're not even aware of, those hundreds of small, meaningless things that happen? About a week or so ago, I I woke up early, and I I opened up my cell phone, and I was reading an article, and, and Anne woke up, and she said, well, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading an article about a research Uh, that was done showing that the average person uh, touches or swipes their phone 2,617 times a day. 
And the person who is really out of control, he's touching his phone 5,427 times a day. That's, for the average person, one million times a year. For those who are unrestrained, that's over two million times a year. We're talking about four hours a day to five hours a day that have accumulated of just small, seemingly insignificant touches, taps on our phones. When I told Ann this, she started laughing because that's what I had been doing for the last half hour. Oh, we're consumed all right, but we're consumed by our distractions. We are consumed at every, at every crossroad. So how do we move out of those distractions? How do we get off that path? God's given us this wonderful, amazing ability to dream, to look forward, to think ahead, to be able to see what is potential and then make plans on how to accomplish that potential, how to reach our potential. There are ways to move past these distractions and all these obstacles in our lives. But the question becomes, what is it that fuels our dreams? Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he was saying, we're on our way to Jerusalem, where I am going to be, I am going to be, I'm going to have to suffer as a result of the scribes and the Pharisees, the high priests. I'm going to be suffering. They are going to beat me, and they're going to kill me. And Peter stands up, immediately says, oh, no, Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us that Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus is being rebuked, and he rebukes Jesus, and he says, no, no, Lord, that is not going to happen to you. That will not, is not part of our plan. We're not going to let that be accomplished. Jesus' response was this. His response was, Satan, get behind me. You are focused on things that are of people. You're not focused on the things of God. Peter was giving Jesus satanic counseling. We talk a lot about biblical counseling. He was giving him satanic counseling, trying to divert him to those things that people hold as most, as, as most important rather than the things that God holds as most important. Well, we have been on a tremendous journey together as a church. We have traveled through many, many roads and through many obstacles and through many, many distractions. And what a road and what a journey we have before us. And as a church, we are convinced that God has special roles for us in this community and in his, and in his kingdom. But revive, it is very easy for us to waste our community. It's easy. We have just gone through a, we went through a nine-month process a period of time ago where we looked at some very hard lessons that we have learned, had learned over the previous nine years. We learned from God, the Holy Spirit. And some of, and some of that came out of that were dreams and some of the time nightmares were coming out of that. We were talking about our failures. We talked about how we needed to confess sins individually and as a church. We talked about shame that we had experienced individually and together. 
We discussed our personal hurts and the damage that had been done to our community. So we also talked about our biblical successes, and there have been, there have been many biblical successes by our, with our church. Ministries within our church and with our community, ministries that, that Bruce listed for us just a few minutes ago, ministries that are not going to be listed here of people just reaching out and helping other people, helping people take care of their children, help people take care of those, those difficult moments, those crossroads where issues have come up that make it impossible for us to, to follow through as we know God has called us to do. We have come together in prayer and we've seen God's magnificent work done as a result of of our prayer. We've been involved in evangelism in our church and in our community and around the world. We've been in ministries in Hungary, in Mexico, in India, all around the world where we as a church have ministered. And we never lost sight of the importance of being a deep, personal caring, and loving church family. So we came together Wednesday night after Wednesday night, spending hours and hours navel-gazing, looking at ourselves, and then looking outward at what we need to be and what we can be. And we decided not to settle for a a tunnel vision where we could just see as few small details as being important. Instead, we expanded our scope in order to have a vision that we believe came to us as a result of our desire uh, of knowing what God had for us. You have that vision statement in front of you. It's that yellow piece of paper. And in that, it describes the, the nine months of struggle and joy that we experienced together. And it includes the, uh, the mission of what our church has and also the biblical principles. Does someone not get that? Does everyone have one? Okay, all right. So out of all of that, if we were going to distill it down to a primary distinguishing characteristic that God, we believe that God wants us to have as a church, it would be that our hearts and our minds must be consumed by Christ. We must be consumed by Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? We desire to be done with lip service of just saying things without following up with anything. We desire to to stop pushing each other's spiritual hot buttons so that we can motivate people for five minutes and instead spend the time that's necessary to grow deeply and have something entrenched in our lives that's going to last and it's going to have influence. We desire to stop taking the the people-pleasing shortcuts of smiling when things do not please God, but instead taking the time and the effort and the hard work necessary to help one another understand what truly it means to be be consumed in Christ. We desire to be completely absorbed by our passion to be a church of called believers. We desire to be a church completely taken over by Christ's radical gospel culture. 
We desire to be a church that is willing to, to follow Jesus wherever he leads us and wherever he sends us. What does a church consumed in Christ look like? It looks like this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to be one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and praises. And with, song, with hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's take another glimpse of what that means. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, where Paul writes this passage to the Corinthian church. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Our perspective of everyone, of each other, of Christ himself, now comes through a new view, a new perspective on life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. The old is gone, and the new is now present. I think John the Baptist summed it up the best for us. He summed it up in John chapter 3, verse 30. When he was speaking to the Pharisees, he said to them that he must de increase, uh, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. In order to be fully Christ's body, how does Revive Church decrease? How do we decrease so that Christ may increase? We do it by choosing together to go through the refiner's fire. Throughout the Bible, we're told about the refiner's fire, where a metal will be placed in a very hot fire, and all of the impurities will be burned away. We do that together. We do that together. And all of those elements that have attached themselves to our faith, that are people things, the impurities, they're purged away so that the genuine gold of our faith may be purified. Now, we're not pretending that we have arrived. We're not pretending that we are a church consumed in Christ at this present time. We understand that this is a process, a fire that will last all of our lives for as long as revived church lasts. This will be the process that we'll constantly be working and moving and striving to be consumed by fire, by the fire of Christ. So we're not pretending that we're there already. And we also are not pretending that this is a church that everyone is going to want to be a part of. We're not pretending that at all. In fact, as we live out our mission and as we live out our identity in Christ, people who come to visit us, who come to take a look at us, it will be more self-selecting. Earlier in the summer, 
after we had changed our time to 9.30. You all know that we changed our time to 9.30, right? That we started at 9.30. Okay, just thought I'd bring that up. We had a guest who had just moved into town, and she came to our church. I think I had preached that Sunday, and uh, I watched after the service how everyone in the church went to her and welcomed her and asked her what she needed, asked her if she needed any help in, in terms of getting settled, um, you know, what, what her life was going to be, was she working, just wanted to get to know her immediately. And after everyone had finished, probably because I had, I had preached that day, she came to me and she said, I want to talk to you about your church. She said, I want you to know that I am not going to return to your church. I said, okay, well, I'd like to know why, if you don't mind sharing. She said, I have driven by the, your church two or three times this last week, and the sign on your church says that you start at 10 o'clock in the morning, and you started at 9.30. And I said, well, we've been trying to get the sign maker to come, who painted our sign to come out and take care of that. I'm sorry if that was inconvenient to you. And she said, well, it was more than inconvenient. If you can't get your sign right about when you're going to start, I'm, you can't get anything right. I'm not coming back here. Forgive me. As she walked away, I said, thank you, Lord. <laughs> We've had our share of those people, haven't we? That are, that are so involved in details that they can't see. They can't see the heart of what's really important and the heart of what's really true. So we're not pretending that we're there, and we're not pretending that we're for everyone. Not everyone is going to be drawn to our church. We want people to know who we are in God. We want people to know, we want people to know that the, where God the Father is calling us. And we want to know how we are being led by God the Holy Spirit. So how do we become revived church consumed in Christ? How do we get there? And how do we get there together? Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we, again, we, live and move and exist in him. We are his children. How? How do we do it? We live together intentionally to be consumed in Christ. So first of all, what is part of that refining fire? What is one of those things that we do, that we need to do, in order to be consumed in Christ? It may seem obvious to some, but honestly it is not. Number one, it's come to church. Come to church. If revived church is going to be consumed in Christ, we need to come to revive church. Bring the people to church with you that you care about. Bring, if you love your family, if you love your friends, if you love your, your co-workers, bring them to church. I think, I think our church has so much to offer that when someone moves into our neighborhood and takes them brownies and I invite them to church, our church, not any church. I'm not saying, why don't you go to church this Sunday? I say, why don't you come to my church this Sunday? We may have something special for you, something important for you. Andrea texted me this last week, and she was, she was saying that a number of parents had been texting her because Kira Amaya, their little girl, had been inviting her friends to revive church. And I texted Andrea back, and I said, we need to bottle 
here is spirit, and then give it to everybody at our church. It's okay for us to come to church and to invite people that we care about and love to our church. We're not apologizing for having a church here at Foothill and the corner of Foothill and Town Avenue. We're not apologizing for that. We're not apologizing that we come and worship every Sunday morning here. That we come and and sing God's praises. That we come and we fellowship. That we share God's word. If a person comes to our church, they're going to hear the truth about salvation and eternity over and over again each Sunday. We're not ashamed of that. We're not ashamed that we start at 9.30 in the morning. I would prefer a little later myself, but we're not ashamed that we start at 9.30 in the morning. That's when we start. That's when we worship together. So we can invite people to church, and we can be here ourselves. In fact, we have biblical reasons for coming. Look at Acts 20, verse 7. It says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. The early church came together on the first day of the week, Sunday, to fellowship, preach, and learn. Right? The first day of the week. Not the Sabbath, not the seventh day of the week. The first day of the week. They came together regularly. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's part of our responsibility as a fellowship, as a body, to spur one another on. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Christ's return approaching. So believers are expected to physically gather together. Now, I'll be honest with you, a lot of Christians that I meet in our community around us, they tell me that they stopped going to church. I often will say, good, because church was never intended to be a place where people go, attend, or sit. Church has always been intended to be a place where people come together in order to to grow and to become what God has called them to be, to be transformed together. It was never a, a passive uh, a passive role for us. It's always meant, have been, it has always been meant to be active. Corey Ten Boom, some of you may be familiar with her. She was a Christian uh, during World War II, uh, during the Nazi Holocaust, and she was a German Christian. I believe she was German. I'm thinking Dutch maybe, someone who knows. She, but she made it possible for, for uh, many Jews to come into her home, and she hid them, saving them from the Holocaust herself. So she she came up in the crucible, the fire of that terrible period of time, ready to sacrifice everything in order to be able to save a few people from this terrible, terrible event. In her precious book, she wrote, when a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. I think that's true. I think it's true that, that Satan would love nothing more than for you to stay as far away from church as possible. Why? Because when we do that, he knows that he'll probably be able to keep us from, from tithing, from helping our church with our spiritual gifts. 
and that Satan will have all of these unchallenged opportunities to distract you. Some say, and I think it's not a bad question, what's in it for me? Literally, what is in it for me to go to church? Why should I go to church? You get to be part of that refining fire and the refined body of Christ. Let me share just a few actual reasons to attend. We come together and worship. Look in in Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. Turn with me there. Verse 1 reads, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So we worship sitting alone. Of course we can sit alone and worship. But there's also something very special and something very important and unique about standing together in worship with your church. Trembling together in the word of God. Recognize that God is doing something incredible, not just in my life, but in the lives of, of everyone who is around me. What's in it for me? I come, I learn God's will, and I learn God's word. It's personal instruction and conviction, but it's also body conviction. I love it when someone comes to me or I hear someone saying, I feel that the Holy Spirit needs us as a church to go in this direction, to do this particular ministry. I love that. Because we're not just called as individuals. We're called believers to be a church. We're called to live our lives together. An early mentor of mine was a man, uh, Don may remember him, L.G. Chaddick. He passed away a number of years ago. And, and one of the things that he liked to say about church, what it's, it was like souls coming together and rubbing up against each other, wearing down the sharp edges, the worldly edges, and the corners in order for us all to be smooth and acceptable to our Lord. We come together because we can receive accountability together. Try to hold yourself accountable to something. How far will that take you? It may take you a ways. But when you have others who have the same care for you, the same desire for you, the same consuming uh, desire for you, then you're going to have that success. Proverbs 24.6 reads, In the multitude of counselors... There is safety. Now, sometimes we think we, that that means we run around to all these different places in order to get counselors, in order to have that, that body, that group of people that we can, we can talk to. I think that can refer to us as well. We are a multitude of counselors. We come together. We all have some expertise in terms of life and in terms of, of understanding who God is and, and what he's done for us and alongside of us. It's not necessary for us just to go to that, that professional class that lives above us. We come to each other. We live together alongside of one another. There are, there are so many blessings that can be received when we make that journey of faith together and with God.
Ruth needed Naomi, didn't she? Paul needed Barnabas. Timothy needed Paul. What is genuine discipleship? It's living with Christians who work hard, and I'm emphasizing the words work hard, to provide encouragement and wisdom to one another. We come to church for spiritual gifting. Do you realize that the Bible actually teaches us that our spiritual gifting is given to us as a result of the needs within our church? So if our church has a need, then God is going to raise up that gift within someone within the church. It's a wake-up call for us, not just for you, but for our entire body. We come to church because we have that privilege and honor to serve one another. What a wonderful gift God has given us to be able to serve, to be able to step outside of ourselves and consider someone else deeply. I think church is, is somewhat like, somewhat, somewhat like a, a language immersion where you go to another country, Mexico, South America, France, Italy, and you live in that language, in that culture for a period of time until it's just steeped within you. And when you walk outside of that, you carry it with you. Being in church is like being in that, that transformation context where we're working together. We're learning the culture of, of the kingdom together. We're learning the language of what it means to be consumed in Christ together. And then when we step outside of that, we take that language, we take that heart, we take that community with us. The transformation of an individual soul leads to the transformation of the entire body. So as one of us changes, we all change because we're living and worshiping together. Because we're serving each other and we're seeking the better for each other. When I was in junior high, I remember the social studies teacher teaching about John Donne, who was an English poet, and he wrote this poem about 400 years ago, No Man is an Island. No man is an island, he wrote, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And that should be true of us. None of us should be isolated on our own. We're all part of this together. We're all part of the continent of Revived Church, of the main. So Christians, Christians, we need to understand that there are fake reasons for not going to church. There are some fake reasons for not going. And so when people share fake reasons with you, we don't want to punish them, we don't want to hurt them, but we do want to respond to them. Why? Because we love them, because we care about them. Here's one reason. Those people at that church, they're not good enough. Well, there's some truth to that, right? There's some truth. We're not good enough. We're not good enough. That's, that's okay that we're not good enough because we're focused on Christ and we realize that, that sanctification is some, it's a process that takes us closer and closer, nearer and nearer to who Christ is. So no, none of us, no matter when they come to visit us or when they want to be with us, we're not going to be good enough. Or they're going to say, I'm not good enough. That may be a reason that they're not coming. That's a fake reason, okay? 
Again, Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We've all failed and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. So we can agree with him, you're right, you're not good enough. But fortunately, none of us is either, so you would fit right in with us. Or another fake reason. Well, they just want our money at that church, at Revive Church. You know what? That's enough. Okay? I think we have gone beyond in order to show that that's not our motivation here. For years now, we collect money, but money doesn't go toward paying salaries or some, some higher professional class. It takes care of the maintenance of the building that God has given us to worship in, and it helps us minister to in amazing ways in our community and around the world. So that's not a good reason. That's a fake reason for us. Someone may say, I don't feel comfortable. That's why I'm not going to church. Good. Good. We don't come to church just to feel comfortable. We come to church to feel convicted, to be prepared to change, to be prepared to grow and to go forward in Christ, not to stay where we are in our comfort zone. Way number one to become consumed in Christ, go to church. Go to revive church, and I'll stand by that. Number two, prepare to suffer. This is a biblical theme throughout the Bible. From the beginning to the end, we learn, we grow, we develop through suffering. In Isaiah 48, God told Isaiah, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. He tells tells him and, and the people around him. Testing by affliction, that's part of being in God's culture and being in God's kingdom. John 15, verse 20. Jesus promised that the world will treat us just like it treated him. Look in John 15. Fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So he promises that our lives are going to be much like his as we are consumed in him. And then in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes to the Roman church, the church in Rome. He says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself a living and holy sacrifice That's not a comfortable situation. A sacrifice, by its very definition, is going to be uncomfortable. In fact, it may include pain and misery. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So throughout the body, throughout the Bible, our transformation as individuals and as a church is to be prioritized. We are to be sanctified, to be made separate, to be made more and more and more like Christ. Now someone may say, whoa, wait a minute. I was just, I was sleeping and I just woke up. Where did this suffering thing come from? That must be in the small print of the Bible. 
You know, Western Christians, Western Christians in the United States, Europe, Canada, and in expanding places around the world have this attitude that if there is suffering involved in our lives, then it can't be right, it can't be normal. Something has to be wrong. We, we become so self-centered. It's as if we're entitled to feel nothing painful, nothing that has anything to do with misery. And when it does happen, we're shocked. We feel betrayed. How can God do this to me? How can God do this to my family? How can God do that to the person on the other side of the world? Anything less than safety or comfort or convenience becomes almost a human rights violation for us. You know what? Our life experience in Christ has not been the experience of the world and it is not the experience of history. Jesus made the point in chapter 5 of Matthew. Look in Matthew with me, please. Matthew 5, in verse 10. This is one of Jesus' earliest teachings. So if anyone didn't hear this, they missed something very important. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say things, uh, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus made this very clear. That was in the headline of the, of the, of the news. Peter, he, made, he spoke something very clearly also. Look in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He's, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is part of, a significant part of, the life of being a Christian. So we can resent, we can become bitter, we can act as if this is, this is not the way life is supposed to be. Or we can stop and we can focus and understand this is part of how I become consumed in Christ. This is how I cherish Christ. Paul in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, if you'll look there, please. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. Suffer hardship with me, Paul says, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is how we live. We rejoice in it. We accept it. We're not, we don't go out looking for it. We're not saying, I need to suffer today. I haven't suffered enough. But when it comes, we understand what it is and for what it is. Well, if a new Christian has this sense, we have not prepared new Christians correctly, have we? See, that's not the small print. It's the headline. We need to share the gospel the way Jesus did. We need to make the cost of discipleship very clear. We need to help people count the cost. Today, in the Islamic, Hindu, or communist regions of the world, if you become a Christian, you're going to be rejected, you're going to be imprisoned, 
You're going to be beaten or executed. This is the real world. We live in la-la land. Both Jesus' words and his life make it very clear that when we align our lives with him, it means that we must be prepared to forsake everything so that we can become more like him. He must increase and we must decrease. He must increase and we must increase. John Piper wrote, Suffering is an essential part of the Christian life. You will suffer. You must suffer. The hope is that during our time together, we'll be prepared to suffer for the glory of Christ. He must increase. We must decrease. The third and the last way I want to suggest that we can be consumed in Christ is walk in the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Holy Spirit together as a church. Suffering or rejoicing, however, whatever circumstance we're in, walk in the Holy Spirit together because God the Holy Spirit aligns us with God's will as found in God's word. In Galatians chapter 25, chapter 5, verse 25, it reads, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So if you live by the Spirit, meaning if you have new life within you, if you are a new creature, if you have been born again, then let us also walk by the Spirit. I found it interesting that a lot of the biblical translations, and and we all have different translations in our uh, Bibles with us, that they all had something a little bit different that they were were focusing on. They, They used the same Greek foundation, of the, of the scripture that we have, and they use a little bit different words to help us understand what it means to walk by the Spirit. One said it means follow the Spirit. Another said walk in step with the Spirit. Another said keep in step with the Spirit. Follow the lead of the Spirit in every part of our lives, one translation wrote. Behave in accordance with the Spirit. Surrender to the Spirit. Our lives need to conform to our spiritual nature. Another one said, let our conduct be governed by the Spirit's power. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. God told Ezekiel that he would give us a clean heart and a new spirit that he would put within us, and that he would cause us to walk by his statutes. He would take the initiative to help us do that. John chapter 3, Jesus again tells Nicodemus that that unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Do not be amazed, he tells Nicodemus. You must be born again. But here's the big test. Here's the big challenge. This is the big one, okay? This is the big one that you want to write down in the the margin of of your Bible. Trust. Trust. How are we going to be consumed in Christ if we don't trust him? If we don't trust God? Now, it's not an uncommon thing for us. We're all in that state at some level or another where we're we're not fulfilling the trust commitment that we've made to God. Again, we all have damaged consciences. 
We all have deceitful hearts. This is what God told Jeremiah, that, that every person, every man, every woman has a deceitful heart. That we're to trust no one, not each other, not ourselves, only God. And there's that verse that we grew up with, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, completely. And do not lean to your own understanding because your own understanding is not complete. It's not full. It's not reliable. In all your ways, every single ways, everything that you do, everything that you think, acknowledge him and he will make your, your way straight. He will show you the way that you are to walk. That's the big one. And as we do that, as we trust, he must increase and we must decrease. It's an incredible process that we're in, being consumed in Christ. Here's the other big one, another big challenge for us, and that is to obey, not just in our thinking, but also in our actions. 1 Peter 1, 21 through 22, I think sums it up for us. Through Christ, you have come to Christ in God. You have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. We do that together for one another as we are consumed in Christ. It's a very personal thing, but it's also a very church thing that we do. We come together on Wednesday nights and, and people are sharing their hearts, their needs, their, their, their struggles, the difficulties that they have in life. And it makes it possible for us to reach out and help smooth the person next to us. What a, what a joy it was while one person was praying for another just this last Wednesday night. Uh, the women on each side of that, that person that was being prayed for, uh, they reached out and they held that person. They stroked that person. They loved that person. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen at church. It happens one-on-one. -on -one family to family. That's what Revive Church desires to be. Imperfectly, presently, but when Christ returns, we know that we will be that perfectly. That's our desire. I'm going to ask everyone to stand, and we're going to read this passage together out loud. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. What, is it, what does a church look like that is consumed in Christ. Read this out loud with me. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for calling us together as believers who are able to recognize the Holy Spirit in one another. Each of us individually has made your spirit a temple of our bodies. And together we make a temple, Lord, a church where we're called together, where we work together. We work with each other, for each other, to become what you've called us and need us to be in your kingdom. Be with us today, Lord, as we seek to be consumed in Christ, as we live out the peace of Christ in our hearts. Help us to be thankful, Father, for any form of suffering that we might be experiencing rather than resentful or feeling entitled that we should not have to experience any kind of pain in our lives. But let us be thankful and let this word of truth live within us and guide us and initiate our behavior and our conduct. Help us, Father, as we seek wisdom from one another. Help us, Lord, as as we admonish one another, as we correct one another, not out of anger or spite, but out of love. Help us, Father, as we sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Let them come from a place of thankfulness within us. And Lord, this week, whatever we do, let us do all that we do as we are consumed in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through, you, through him to you, Father. In your son's holy name we pray this morning. Amen.